Welcome back to Countdown to the Rising, Episode 3, Lord of the Ants. Today's episode contains graphic details of torture and mutilation. You've been warned. In 1947, on May 16th, Roche Thoreau was born. He had a relatively normal childhood, growing up as the second out of seven children in a conservative religious family. They were a working-class family that lived in the French-Canadian area of Saguenay, Quebec, in Canada. In 1953, when he was six years old, his family moved to a small city in southern Quebec. His parents were extremely religious and belonged to the Pilgrims of St. Michael. The Pilgrims of St. Michael were a religious organization also referred to as the White Berets, a reference to the White Beret that was worn as part of their ceremonious uniform. The White Berets were a mix of religion and politics, and they promoted an ideology of democratized consumerism. However, their ideas were rejected by economists and looked down upon based on their anti-Semitic beliefs. Instead, they drew in their followers through the journal. The journal was a pamphlet that was delivered door-to-door by members of the church, which contained their message. Oftentimes, Thoreau would be dragged along door-to-door by his parents to hand out the journal. From this, Thoreau would grow to despise the group and organize religion in general. Thoreau attended school up until 7th grade and was praised by his teachers for his high intellect. However, the local school in his area only went up to 7th grade, so instead of traveling, he decided to work and study at home. During this time, he read the Old Testament and taught himself Bible studies and the English language. Later in life, he would complain about his childhood in a series of letters. He insisted that his parents were drunks and he would constantly be beaten and abused. However, no evidence has been brought forth to show that this was true. None of his friends or family at the time remember any type of behavior occurring. He also said that he was born from an incestuous relationship, but again, there's no evidence to support any of his claims in this area. In 1967, on November 11th, Thoreau, at age 20, married 17-year-old Francine Grenier. They moved to Montreal, and Francine gave birth to two sons, Roche Sylvain in 1969 and Francois in 1971. Roche developed stomach ulcers in 1971, and many credit this as the turning point in his life when things quickly spiraled, spiraled downwards. After seeing a doctor for his stomach ulcers, Thoreau was advised to undergo surgery to have them removed. This was a fairly common procedure at the time. However, he came out of the surgery with a complication. He now suffered from dumping syndrome, leaving him with constant abdominal pain. Although he was prescribed pain medication, he quickly turned to self-medication with alcohol. Thoreau became obsessed with medicine and anatomy, and even complained that he was dying, although he wasn't. Thoreau lost his job, and the family moved back to Thetford Mines, where he started a small business selling sculptures that he made. He also joined a local arm of Freemasonry called Le Club Aramas, where he got involved in local politics. In 1976, he continued to drink heavily, and by then he was making frequent trips to Quebec City, where his woodworking sales were an excuse to carry out affairs and pick up women, all while his wife was left at home with their kids. Francine soon left him, as his working business continued to fail. He soon found himself bankrupt and unemployed, sleeping in his car and periodically living with a woman in Quebec City named Giselle. Giselle quickly discovered the seriousness of his drinking problem. However, Thoreau soon became fascinated with a new religious group called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
The Seventh-day Adventist Church is a denomination of Protestant Christianity. The followers, called Adventists, like most religions, lie on a spectrum. However, in general, could be categorized as traditional, more fundamental. Believing in the Holy Trinity, observing the Sabbath on Saturday, the seventh day in the Christian and Jewish calendar, and the imminent second coming of Christ. Followers believe that a book of judgment is studied in heaven to see who will be admitted to heaven and in Christian mortalism, or the concept that the soul itself is not inherently moral. Advocates of a conservative and holistic lifestyle, vegetarianism is also advocated and kosher foods are prohibited. Thoreau quickly immersed himself into this new religion and quit drinking and smoking. Every Saturday, he would meet with a local group of Adventists in a nearby motel to preach the second coming of Christ and the importance of conservative living. Thoreau was still unemployed but began selling Adventist literature despite his hatred for this during his childhood. With his enthusiasm and charisma, he succeeded in this role. In early 1977, Thoreau was put in charge of leading a program that helped potential followers of the group to quit smoking. Thoreau liked this role, and by the end of the summer, he had attracted a small group of young adults aged 18 to 24 who were all suffering from some type of grief. It is noted that most of the group was made up of young women who found Thoreau to be charming and attractive. Thoreau enjoyed the attention that they gave him. They would meet on weekends in Giselle's apartment, and Thoreau soon converted Giselle to become an Adventist. Thoreau convinced all of the members of the group to promptly drop out of college, and they listened and did. Looking back at this, he was taking the first steps to isolate his group from outsiders. During the summer of 77, the group went on a retreat to Lake Rousseau, Muskoka, Ontario. While hiking alone, Roche Thoreau reached a rocky outcrop and looking out over the landscape had a divine vision. The sky lit up in bright white light and the voice of God spoke to him, pointing out that the outcrop was a holy place. This convinced him that the group should move out of the city. In October of 1977, he encouraged all of the group that they should come and live with him in the abuse region of Canada. All of them rented a two-story house together and opened the Healthy Living Clinic. This was an alternative medicine clinic that used its ties to the Adventists to sell organic food and holistic literature. It was at this time that Thoreau implemented a uniform. The women wore green, ankle-length tunics. The men wore beige, and Thoreau himself wore dark brown. Giselle did not like seeing Thoreau surrounded by so many young women and proposed to him and they got married on January 8, 1978 at an Adventist church in Montreal. In March of that year, a man named Auclair became fascinated with the group. His wife was suffering from leukemia and undergoing chemotherapy. Thoreau did not approve of this treatment and had Auclair forcefully sign his wife out of the hospital so that Thoreau could treat her in his own clinic. Thoreau prescribed her a treatment of grape juice and organic foods. She died shortly after arriving at the clinic, but Thoreau told his followers that he had momentarily brought her back to life after kissing her. Back in Quebec, Adventists were not happy about Thoreau's clinic. He eventually was removed from the Adventist church, and this dried up his stock lines of organic food and literature for the clinic. Thoreau abandoned the clinic in July of 78 and moved the group to a small town of Fleur Saint Laurent. Thoreau decided to pair up his followers and have them marry each other, despite them showing no romantic interest in each other. On July 6th, he told the group that the world was going to end 
on February 17, 1979, when a storm of boulder-sized hail would fall from the sky, he said they would become God's chosen. Days later, the group headed out on foot into the Gasp Peninsula to find a new place to live. On July 9th, the group began building a communal wood cabin. Thoreau named the patch of land that they would be living on until the end of the world as Eternal Mountain. Thoreau gave the members new uniforms that were easier to work in. It's something they would soon get accustomed to doing. He ordered them to work 17 hours a day in order to build a cabin and dig a well. He also began rationing their food. They quickly learned not to complain, else their food would be cut and they'd receive few rations. The cabin was completed by September, and by this time, two members had already fled the group and left them completely. Thoreau renamed the remaining group members with biblical names and renamed himself as Moses. The members called him Pappy, and Giselle was called Mammy. He then dissolved all of the marriages within the group and married all of the women for himself. Later that evening, one of the female members of the group confessed to Giselle that she had slept with Thoreau when they were building the cabin. This prompted Giselle to try and flee into the surrounding woods, but Thoreau caught her, choked her, and demanded that she return. She did. In the outside world, news of Jonestown had begun to spread, and police decided to start watching Thoreau and his group in November of 1978. Thoreau submitted himself to the police for a psychological evaluation, where he used his skills to inexplicably charm people, telling psychiatrists that the group was a democracy, and there was no real leader. He told them that they lived in peace and without promiscuity, and since the police had nothing on him thus far, they simply had to admit that he was eccentric, but they didn't have any proof he was doing anything wrong, not that they were aware of. Soon, Thoreau abandoned his Adventist lifestyle and began drinking again. He began eating and drinking milk, meat, and cheese. This group was struggling financially. So he began prostituting one of his wives to a local grocer in order to supply them all with food. He would stand at the head of the large communal cabin giving long, drunken sermons. And if any of the group fell asleep or uttered anything close to a complaint, he would beat them with a four-inch thick club or punch them in the torso. He once did this to his pregnant wife, breaking two of her ribs. And when she ate more than her share of pancake rations one breakfast at a time, if anyone ever gave him a reason to feel aggravated, he would then make them stand naked outside, regardless of the temperatures. On February 17, 1979, the world did not end, and Christ did not return. Thoreau was quick to satisfy his followers, giving them an explanation that time passes differently for God compared to men. So, there was a bit of a confusion as to when the actual date was. In April... One of the men of the group decided to leave. Thoreau told the other members that he had been taken by the devil. When a female member of the group talked to her former husband without, about wanting to leave the group, Thoreau ordered the husband to cut his, one of the wife's toes off with an axe. He complied and cut off one of her toes. How can people do such horrific acts to the ones they love? I sat down with Professor John Yezzy to discuss this. Well, more often than not, when we look at like cults or... You know, cult is short for a culture. And like when we're looking at cultures, different cultures can be kind of that, you know, like more recently than not, what we've heard in today's society is that ride or die, right? Yeah. Like, and that's what's come around. And a lot of cultures operate out of that where it's 
you know, you hear Blood Brothers or Ride or Dies or like this kind of like forever sort of concept, whatever term, like terminology that the group chooses to use. And if the daughter had bought in with her mother, then the only way out is death sometimes. Um, you see it a lot in like gangs or like, you know, I mean, gangs is probably the most used term that hides or masks cults, but we like to use gangs because it carries a negative connotation. Um, if you're looking at it, cult from different aspects, it's like cults are everywhere. It's just how my, like macro or microscopic of a realm you want to operate on. Like societally, we look and go, oh, that's a cult because they're not abiding by a societal norm. Well, what is a societal norm? Um, you know, cause like different sports teams have cultures, different bikers have cultures, different, um, students, you know, like you could sit there and say, well, there are a group of art students. That's a, I could be considered a cult depending on how they're operating. Um, you know, cause it's like, if there has to be a buy-in. So yeah, they, they were a, um, Mormon doomsday cult but they didn't really so they believed in really crazy stuff like uh their kids or not kids but the um they think people could get like possessed by zombies or something like that and that like the world was ending in a few months or something so they were like uh, they're a really weird bunch but yeah they exist man i mean that's just a part of the world there's a lot of individuals that believe in a lot of different things um, you know, and just figuring that out, it's no different than the fact that like satanic is still out there. And then we have Catholic, like a lot of religious beliefs could be identified as cults. Um, it's everything. It's that belief system. And then like you have extremists and those are the ones that we like to talk about the most. Um, but cults are everywhere. In April, one of the members was ordered by the court to be removed and to undergo a psychological evaluation. When police showed up to retrieve the girl, Thoreau denied them access and made them leave. The next day, 10 police showed up in a helicopter which landed on Eternal Mountain and arrested Thoreau for obstruction of justice and ordered him to also take a psychological evaluation. Thoreau not only aced his evaluation, he considered his he convinced his testers that he had saved his followers from a life of depravity and drugs. The director, even, of the hospital where this evaluation occurred started calling him Moses and publicly expressed scorn for the poor treatment of Roche Thoreau by a prejudiced society who were suspicious of his alternative lifestyle. Thoreau was released early and judged fit to stand trial for obstruction of justice, for which he was given a one-year suspended sentence. During the trial, the media began printing stories of Thoreau, portraying him as a victim of prejudgments. The whole affair only proved to strengthen the ties between Thoreau and his followers. When one of his members, a long-term MS sufferer, fell into a coma and died shortly after his return, the authorities denied him from burying her at the foot of the mountain, instead removing her body for autopsy. Thoreau used both events to strengthen the us-versus-them mentality he had been carefully building. The autopsy later returned with no evidence of foul play. In 1980, a man by the name of Guy Veer joined the group. 
He met Thoreau at the hospital where the psychological evaluation took place, while he was there receiving treatment for depression. Veer was permitted to stay in a storage shed with a small wood stove, 24 bottles of homemade beer, two hens, a rooster, and received one meal per day. He was essentially taken in to be a slave for Thoreau personally. He was forced to chop wood, do cabin construction, and babysit. Veer was classified amongst the group as an outsider. On March 23, 1980, Thoreau was having a party to welcome his two sons from his first marriage to Eternal Mountain, where they would now be living. They were now aged 12 and 10. The same night, Thoreau decided that one of the other children, Samuel, needed to be circumcised. Using a blade and a 94% ethanol solution for sterilization, he took it upon himself to see the job done. At the same time, he administered the ethanol solution orally to the infant as an anesthetic. The next morning, Samuel was found dead. Thoreau was concerned that if the body was buried, it may be dug up by animals. He suggested a cremation, and the group agreed. The infant's body was burned. After six months of Veer living on Eternal Mountain, Thoreau began telling a story that Veer beat the infant Samuel to death. Thoreau demanded that Veer stand trial for his actions. A mock trial ended up occurring, where Veer was found not guilty on the reason of insanity. Thoreau was not happy with this and wanted Veer to be castrated. He eventually convinced Veer to write a letter of consent to this procedure, telling him that it would also cure his headaches and his masturbation habits. Thoreau carried out the surgery on the kitchen table. On November 5, 1980, Veer fled to a nearby town and detailed the death of Samuel. However, he changed the story and said that he was kicked by a horse. Veer's testimony was enough for police to raid the Eternal Mountain. Members of the group protested this, saying that Veer himself had beaten Samuel to death. Police arrested Thoreau, as well as two other group members, Jacques Guiguet and Marie Screnier. During the trial, the coroner found the group to be criminal responsible, despite everyone pleading not guilty. Thoreau, Guiguet, Grenier, and Veer were charged with being criminally negligent and causing bodily harm. Jacques, Maurice, Cloud, and Solange were further charged with neglect towards their children. Thoreau and Gabriel were charged with bodily harm and intent to mutilate for their work on Veer's castration. Thoreau and Gabriel were denied bail as they were considered to be a danger to society, and Thoreau was sentenced to two years in prison with three years probation and transferred to Orsainville Detention Center in Quebec. During his prison sentence, the group moved to Quebec renting four apartments, allowing them to be closer to their leader. The police ended up burning Eternal Mountain to the ground. Thoreau was released eventually from prison in February of 1984 and was welcomed back by his followers. He convinced them that they should go out and build another cabin to live in. He decided they should go to an area called Burnt River, an English-speaking area of Victoria County. Mind you, Roche Thoreau was the only English speaker in the group which ensured that the group would be fully isolated from those around them and completely under his control. In May of 84, the construction began on the new cabin. The group was running low on funds, so they began stealing from stores in nearby towns. When caught by police, they ended up reverting back to selling fruits out of their self-made farm stand. This proved to be successful, 
and Roche Thoreau decided to turn it into a company named the Ant Hill Kids. Despite these successes, Thoreau once again began drinking heavily, and the spiral into violence and destruction started once more. His tirade against his followers this time included making the women nude wrestle, forcing the men to stand in the center of a circle of the women while they punched and kicked them. Thoreau routinely punched and whipped them, hit them with hammers, and urinated on them. If any of them sustained any severe injuries, he forbid them from visiting the hospital. After bouts of violence, Roche would cry and beg God to stop using him as a tool to implement the Lord's justice. He couldn't be lamed if he was simply following orders. On the morning of January 26, 1985, Gabrielle left her five-month-old infant outside in minus 10 degrees temperatures, lying in a wheelbarrow where he promptly froze to death. Thoreau had previously stated how much he hated the child, and it had been marked by the devil. The county coroner judged the baby to have died from SIDS. However, the local Children's Aid Society took note of this and began watching the compound very closely. Now, in the outside world, the children told of horrific violence and abuse against them carried out by Thoreau, including depriving them of sleep, food, and education. Thoreau would hold blood sacrifices in front of them, killing a goat and smearing himself in its blood, and sexual abuses were carried out simultaneously, all in the aid of what he deems sexual instruction. At this time, Thoreau was still violent. He broke Jacques' ribs with an axe, burnt Nicole's stomach, and Jose's back with a blowtorch. He beat a three-month pregnant Nicole, causing her to miscarry, and shot her in the shoulder with a 303 caliber rifle. He broke Giselle's ribs with a pair of steel-toed boots, sliced Cloud's arms open with shards of glass, pulled 11 of his teeth with a pair of pliers, and had one of his wives break Cloud's legs with a sledgehammer. He eventually ordered Cloud to wrap a rubber band around his testicles, and when this caused obvious side effects, he castrated him, cauterizing the wound with a piece of hot iron. At one point, he even took a vote for stoning Cloud to death. However, the vote failed, much to his dismay. He then decided to toss a hunting knife into Giselle's leg, causing a deep gash in her thigh, and when it clotted, he filled the wound with olive oil, salt, and spruce gum to keep away any infection. In the fall of 1988, Solange fell ill. Thoreau diagnosed her with some kind of kidney ailment and suggested immediate surgery. He cleared off the bakery table, made her strip naked, gave her an enema of molasses, oil, and water, and then cut open her stomach, removing a random slice of flesh in the process. He then ordered Gabrielle to stitch the wound and declared her cured. By morning, Solange had died of peritonitis, a fatal leaking of her digestive fluids in her abdominal cavity. Thoreau claimed he had seen visions and dreams of Solange inside himself, and images of Solange taking shape from his semen. He thought that this had mean that he was now pregnant with Solange, and that he was going to give her a spiritual rebirth. He immediately arranged for a marriage to be concluded between him and the dead Solange, and dressed in his best costume, ornate with jewelry. He ordered the exhumation of Solange's body, and which was buried on the commune's land. He then drilled a hole into her skull and proceeded to masturbate into the hole. He then reburied her and convinced himself that this would bring her back to life. On July 25, 1989, 
Thoreau decided that Gabrielle's aching finger needed surgery. He took her to the kitchen table, stabbed a knife through her hand and halfway between the elbow and shoulder, cut her arm to the bone. Gabrielle ran away to a women's shelter, but Roche promptly convinced her to return, where he finished the job on her arm, cutting it off with a meat cleaver. He then proceeded to leave it a few days before cutting out the infection and cauterizing the stump with a heated metal bar. Two weeks later, Gabrielle fled to a nearby hospital, stating that she had gotten into a vehicle accident. However, the truth came out, and eventually Thoreau's compound was raided once again, but by the time the police arrived, all the members had already fled. On October 6, 1989, police eventually found Thoreau. During the trial, everyone pleaded guilty. Thoreau was sentenced to 12 years, but his sentence was reduced to 10 years after he had shown the judge genuine remorse and concern for the victim. Police also pressed charges against Thoreau for first-degree murder. However, there was not enough evidence to prove that it was premeditated. His lawyers made a deal that he would plead guilty to second-degree murder, as long as no further charges were brought against him. On January 18, 1993, Thoreau was ultimately sentenced to life in prison and due for release in 2014. How would life play out for Roche in prison? I sat down with Professor Gary Birdie of Springfield College to discuss. Are you familiar with the Ant Hill Kids? I am not. In Canada? So no, it I am was not. led by this guy who was a uh, offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Here we go, religion again, right? Yep. And okay. um, his name was like Roche Thero or whatever. I can't speak French, so that's as close as I can get. That's uh, close as good enough. And... Um, he, he led this cult, and the thing was the amount of, like, control he was able to exhibit on them. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if they did something that he viewed as, like, a transgression, he would tell them to, like, literally break their legs with a sledgehammer, and they'd, like, do it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Jesus. Yeah, and then it gets even stranger, too, because he, um... It wasn't like one of those cults where it's like one dude and a ton of women and his children, right? Mm -hmm. It was him, his first wife, and uh, multiple other, like, people, like, man and woman. But the thing was, was he he was able to, um, what do you call it? He'd go up to the guys and their wives and be like, hey, I want to get your wife pregnant. And the guy would be like... Yes, sir, you can go ahead and do that. And then he'd get the, the wives pregnant of, like, every male cult member in the cult. So it's just weird how you, like, psychologically get people to obey you to that level. Well, you know what? That's that's not all unusual because when people start cults, usually the leaders are usually very charismatic. And they know how to uh, sort of pick out those that are the most vulnerable using their charm and their intellect. And then finding the weaknesses or the vulnerabilities of their victims. I mean, we've talked many, many times in my classes about, um, what's his name? Let's say Ron Applegate, the guy who did uh, Heaven's Gate, where they all killed themselves. They dressed up like uh, they were in the Starship Enterprise. And then they, when, when the, um, Let's see, Halley's Comet was coming close to Earth. They believed that that was like a sleigh that they could die in the sand and, and evacuate the Earth. But everybody, without exception, had either a master's degree or a doctorate's degree. There's 38 of them that killed themselves all at the same time in this ritual. That's control. 
You know, and then you have Jones down in Guyana, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, 960 people. And it just, it, most of those happened in the 80s. So there's something may have been going on as well. Late 70s, 80s. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of sexual cults too. Even the Charlie Manson thing in which they did the murders, that was all part of it as well. So it is a phenomenon that we need to understand better. Yeah, I mean, even today, there was, like, some sex cult that was, um, I, I think it's, like, NVXM or something like that. It was some, like, okay. entrepreneur guy. He was, like, really young, too, for a cult. And he was, like, branding people with, like, a cattle iron. And, like, it, it was crazy because it was, like, a really big cult, too. Well, you know, you could, I'm pretty sure the FBI and Department of Justice has a website with uh, information on current cults in the United States. I don't know if that'll be of any help to you, but maybe later on in your studies, because there, there is a database on all these cults, you know? So just something to think about. No, you know, it, it, wouldn't be unusual, it wouldn't be unusual for somebody to try to revive that. Hmm. You know, it's not, not good for sure. So how would they like, um, would, are you familiar at all with like the process of how they would go about classifying the cult? Um, no, I'm not, but I would imagine they would be, you know, perhaps religious, um, gender, location, um, whether it's an apocalyptic belief, like, you know, in, uh, Waco, um, whether it's sexually oriented, you know, whether it's trafficking, I'm sure they would develop a category as soon as they found out what the cult's about, but maybe there's some cults that they're not even aware of. Yeah, I mean, some... there may be, no, there may be a lot of things. There may be a lot of things that could be classified as a cult that are acceptable, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think once you start crossing the line and committing a crime, then then it's you know a lot more. Um, we have to be a lot more focused on how we can um, address those and look at them and figure out what's going on, and then stop it if it's hurting people. Yeah, it was like um, the only reason they were able to find about. Um... Roche was his, uh, one of the people, like, had enough and escaped. Yeah, well, and that's... And got help. Well, that's the other thing, too. And we've changed the laws regarding sexual assault. We've changed the laws regarding uh, statute of limitations. And we've changed the laws on how to define kidnapping. Kidnapping doesn't mean, you you know, you, you hit somebody over the head and drag them into your car and drive away. Kidnapping means you restrict anybody's movement. So, I mean, there's a lot more laws, I think, that have evolved and developed since then that have helped law enforcement um, pursue these more aggressively. Yeah, it's like um, once he got into prison, he um, one of the inmates eventually killed him. So it was kind of like, the, I think a whole new thing was generated about, okay, what do we do with cults in prison? How do we, like restrict and even with like charles manson i'm sure it was brought up like how do we restrict their movement but like keep them from getting whacked off in prison sometimes i am only speculating and i'm being quite cynical uh, sometimes i think the government knows full well that they're a danger but can't you know protect them and so going to prison sometimes can be a death sentence you know, would he put him in isolation? I mean, if they were a political prisoner or something like that, maybe. But I think for something like this, they, should they be treated special? I don't know. You know, depending on the jurisdiction, too, is it county jail, state, federal? 
I'm not surprised, you know. Yeah. Sadly, but I'm not surprised. Life in prison would not end too well for Thoreau. Thoreau was denied multiple attempts for early parole. Meanwhile, he decided to start making artwork while he was incarcerated. He received visits from three of his wives. On February 26, 2011, Thoreau was found in his cell stabbed to death after an altercation with his roommate. His cellmate walked in, stabbed him in the neck, and proceeded to walk up to the police to the guard station and tell him, hey, he's dead, I did him. I sat down to discuss inmate justice with Professor Russell Smith of Springfield College. Basically, that could be another inmate who is just so outraged by what they do, so affronted. Uh, they theoretically could be a relative of somebody. And if they got the opportunity, they would uh, kill them, you know, <laughs> or seriously harm them. Uh, I can think of one instance, not really a cult, but just kind of take the point home. Um, a bad guy was evading the police, got into a car wreck, killed a mother and a young daughter. Okay. Guy was convicted of vehicular man manslaughter or whatever. Got inside. First night there, first day there in general population. Inmate came up to him. He was sitting down at uh, in one of the in one of the housing units at a table. Guy said, "You need to get out of here." Inmate looked at him and said, "Fuck you." Took him down, snapped his neck. You know, uh, the inmate was in for murder anyway. He was a gangbanger from Hartford. And, you know, that's inmate justice. So, uh, just a quick question. So is most inmate justice, is it on like an individual level, like the person has an issue, or is it a lot of like a group thing where all the people are like, hey, whoever, you know, takes this guy out gets more respect and... Um, yes and no. If it's a, a gang-related thing, you know, if a uh, Los Salidos goes in and the guys from uh, Aryan Brotherhood or one of the other gangs says, yeah, he, you know, he killed one of our guys or whatever, and you take him out, yes, you'll get a whole lot more respect. <laughs> Uh, but you're going to use all that respect for the next 50 years in prison. You know, um, but that, you know, that's what it's like. Officially, okay, if uh, a cult leader, a Branch Davidian type guy or whomever came in, if he wanted to go to school, that's up to him. 
uh, as long as he meets the qualifications and there's not a security risk issue with him, he would go to school or he'd go to church or to recreation or, you know, to whatever. Um, you know, we're not biased. You know, we're not allowed to be. We weren't allowed to be. So would, like, there be... So I know in prisons, there's, like, you know, sexual offenders, like, people who molest children all that they don't really have mm. a good reputation they're like a target in a prison is there something similar for people who like you know murder children um i can't answer that i i, I just don't know okay okay i um the one thing i did look into you know since None of my sources helped me out here. I looked at the directors, and you can look these up too in the uh, Department of Corrections, State of Connecticut, and all say administrative directors. Mm -hmm. And I looked under security risk groups, and they didn't list any names per se because they don't want to give out that information to the general public. But then I looked under religious uh, services and activities. And people can, or inmates, are allowed to engage in private, non-disruptive uh, religious practices. Okay. Uh, and obviously, we're, we're not talking mainstream Catholic, Islam, Jewish, Methodist, you know, Protestant, whatever, Hindu. That's pretty mainstream stuff. But if you were a, uh, a Rastafarian or something from Jamaica, or you had some sort of weird cult, you could practice that as long as, and you could get information about that as long as it met the safety and security guidelines uh, from the facility. Yeah. So is it common touching back on the whole um, concept of like uh, inmate justice and all that? Um, is it possible how um, in the case there was this other guy um, from he was killed back in like 2011? Um, he was a Canadian, but um, the same concept kind of still applies with um, inmate justice. How he was in, he was notorious. His name was um, Rosh Thoreau. He had like this cult called the Ant Hill Kids, where it was like brutal. Um, and so his cellmate just walked up to him and like just stabbed him and then told the guards, Yeah, I killed him. But is it possible that like other inmates kind of cover for that sort of behavior? Um, yes and no, okay, uh, there is honor among thieves as long as it benefits them. Um, you mentioned about child molesters, you saw on the, uh, in McDougal on the second tier, you had to walk down those stairs at rec time or for meals or whatever 
and all of a sudden there's a big gap between you and the guy in front of you and you get shoved down the stairs well, I didn't know who did it man I was just walking down the stairs he, he tumbled I, you know. and you hope that the camera's not on you um, and that's, that stuff happens you know uh, uh, less so in a cell facility as opposed to say a Carl Robinson which is a dormitory facility which is uh, basically 90 guys in a military style barracks two bunk you know bunk beds and you know in the middle of the night you get a blanket thrown over you get the crap beat out of you So is there, like, much concern about, like, the cults kind of... Because they're a doomsday cult that uh, both were. And um, in the case of, like, Chad and Lori, um, they have, like... There's a history of, like, their uh, believers being people who kind of take action, not one of those, like, you know, hideaway kind of cults. So is there, like, concern with, like... Would there be a concern in a prison system of them kind of, like preaching and getting members okay that's where that line comes in mm -hmm. yeah you may be a doom, doomsday cult and believe that that fan above your head is your god and you know whatever uh, not disruptive not engaging other inmates gotcha it's your business if you get out in the middle of the wreck yard stand up and say hallelujah we're all gonna die today the you know it's the apocalypse now you're going to be moved away gotcha and dealt with the Ant Hill kids by far are one of the most brutal and notorious of violent cults the control that was wielded by Thoreau over his followers all the way till his death, shows just how powerful a charismatic leader can be. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We really appreciate your support. And on behalf of the entire Countdown to the Rising crew, take care and thanks.